Hey, this is Stephen St. John, and I want you to listen to my new podcast, Hot Mike with SSJ. You can watch Hot Mike with SSJ on YouTube or download the podcast wherever you download your favorite podcasts. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Now, this is a uh, kind of a re-edit of one I did that was particularly interesting. Uh, once had a prison guard from Marion, Illinois, the federal penitentiary. There, his name was David Lehman, and, and he had his own YouTube channel for quite a while uh, as the key turns, and then he took it off. And I called him this morning. It had been off quite quite a while. And talked to him. He said, "You know," he said, "I just had all the stories I." had to tell and and I was done. And when he got done, he took his whole channel down. And, and it's kind of a shame because there were some great stories on there. And I, I recorded part of this one before about when John Gotti came to the penitentiary and uh, and his uh, relationship with him. So I'm going to re-edit this thing and, and put it back out. Uh, it, it's a great story. Uh, he's He's an interesting guy. But he was there, as he says, the day that John Gotti came into the penitentiary. And in an interesting sidelight, he remembered our friend Mac McNally, Martin Mac McNally, who was the skyjacker that spent all of his, he spent 42 years, 43 years in the different federal penitentiaries, mainly in Leavenworth and then Merriam. And he remembered him well. He said Mac was a kind of guy. He was kind of a good guy, but he was always looking to game the system. He was trying to figure out systems and, and see what he could get for himself, which is pretty typical of what guys do the penitentiary uh, where they got way too much time on their hands. Uh, Mac uh, he even tried to escape two or three times out of that and was part of a, a pretty famous escape that uh, David told us a, a little piece of that. I've got that one uh, back in the, my old catalog somewhere. And this was in there too, but I wanted to re-edit this and, and update a little bit since uh, Gotti is uh, really taking on a cult-like status in, in the uh, uh, society in the United States. Now, don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire, or you can make a donation through, your, uh, through PayPal or use your credit card through PayPal on my website, ganglandwire.com. So sit back and listen to this former prison guard tell about his experiences working with John Gotti in the penitentiary. Well, when he just walked in the door, when he arrived down there, it was like, I don't know, the, the, the biggest celebrity known to mankind walked in there. Every inmate that could see him or hear him or knew that he could hear them pledged that they would do anything that he wanted. Uh, do you need anything? Anything that I have, you can have. That was pretty much the, the thing. And uh, he, he walked in there like uh, this super celebrity guy, just kind of nodding his head. Yeah, okay, thank you, and I'll keep that in mind and that sort of thing. And he went to his cell, and we put him in his cell the cuffs off of him and for the rest of the evening all you could hear was about how much i think you're a great guy and and we love you and it, it was just on and on like that 
later, he was still very well respected and everybody seemed to like him. But, uh, you know, I didn't have to constantly hear about how I'll do anything for you from all the other inmates. I think the, the biggest incident that's known on the outside is when he was uh, uh, assaulted. Probably what got into his mind is that he was, uh, he was a big deal celebrity and nobody could do anything to him. And he had the protection of the ADs. So he, he felt bulletproof. He could wander around, do anything, unlike some people that could uh, be scared to tell you to stuff it. And I'm not closing that window. This guy didn't, didn't feel that those rules applied to him. And I was told that um, up on C range, which is the, the upper part of the, the cell house, it's only an 18-inch wide little walkway. It's a little catwalk. And so if you and I were to meet going in opposite directions, I would have to kind of stand a little sideways, and so would you, so that we could pass each other. And uh, there was an inmate up there named Walter Johnson, who, by the way, is the only inmate that I can ever remember being afraid of. He was a scary guy. He was a, he was a extremely muscled-up black guy in his late 20s that had an explosive temper. I mean maniacally explosive, just, just unbelievably angry individual. It's like he was just angry at everyone and everything all the time. Apparently him and Dottie had some words when they, when they had to pass each other. And of course, Dottie doesn't feel that he needs to move aside or anything else. You need to get out of my way because I'm John Dottie. And this, this Walter Johnson, I was told, didn't, uh, didn't feel that he had to get out of the way. So the next day, the day that I was at work, uh, I end up getting, uh, we're, we're sitting around like we always do when we hear deuces. It's 222. You dial 222 on the phone and you report, hey, this is dog unit or easy. I don't remember which unit exactly. I think it was easy unit. We have a fight in easy unit. So I run the easy unit. And uh, the number one's on the door. He opens it up and he tells me, go downstairs, go downstairs. I run downstairs and on the left-hand side, which is the A range, I, I belly right up to the, to the bars. And I see an inmate, a black inmate, which turns out later to be this Walter Johnson, striking somebody that's on the ground and I can't really see who he is. Other people have told me that they reviewed the tape. And there is a tape there. I don't know where it is. I know it existed at one time because other people have reviewed it. That see this entire incident from beginning to end, probably even sees me in, in the video. I don't know what happened before. The unit staff told me that Dottie was just kind of walking around on the range like he always does. And this Johnson walked up behind him like, like he does and struck him in the back of the head and Dottie's half beat up before he even knows he's in a, in a uh, altercation. And this Johnson just loses it and hits him repeatedly and kicking him and trying to knee him and back his head on the floor. And of course, then they call the deuces and then I show up and I see him strike this, uh, this body that I can't tell who it is on the floor a couple of times. I yell at everybody, Hey, we're going to open the door and anybody that's not on the ground, is going to be beaten up. I'm going to strike you with a, I got a 36 inch long riot baton with a metal ball on each end. And uh, if I drive that into your ribs, uh, you'll, you'll remember that for the rest of your life. And uh, so inmates don't want to 
play that game because uh, I certainly wouldn't want that thing drove into me. And then we, we enter the thing, both Dottie and this, this Johnson lay on the ground. We end up cuffing them and taking them away. And I noticed that uh, now I know it's Dottie because I can see him. And uh, he's bleeding from the, from the head because every little scratch on your head seems to bleed a lot. And uh, I thought he was hurt a lot worse than he was, but he just really had a, a good dent in his, in his forehead. And that's pretty much, and a few scratches and stuff. I spoke to some of the people that later after the fight, and, then, and God, he said that he had slipped and fallen, and that's how he got hurt. Even though it's, they showed him the tape. Look, it's right here on the tape. He said, no, that's fake. I slipped and fell. Johnson, who's got a bunch of injuries on his hands where he was hitting Dottie, claims that one of us stomped on his hands, and uh, that's how he got those injuries. But nobody was fighting as far as them two are concerned. Well, you got to you got to admire Gotti. He he was a stand up dude. He he didn't he practiced Omerta right to the right to the end of that. It was uh, you got to admire a guy to do that. Now there were other prisoners that were standing around. Nobody else jumped in or tried to help Gotti. I, I would understand you to say Is that correct? That's correct. I didn't see anybody assist anyone. It was this is not my fight, and I'm backing away. And that's that's kind of what they did. We, we ended up locking that guy up in G unit, which uh, I eventually ended up working the, that unit when Walter Johnson was in there. And we put him way back in the back in 18 cell. And the reason we did that was because every time I entered that, that range that he was on, and I would turn to my coworker and say, so how was fishing last weekend? And Johnson way in the back would start screaming, I know you're talking about me. I don't want you talking about me. I'm going to get out of here and kill you. And then he started jerking the, the solid door because we had a solid door and he would be yelling and you could see the spit flying out of his mouth. And he would go into these complete berserk rages. I told somebody one time and it shocked the guy. I said, you know, I almost believe that guy could rip that door off the hinges. And if he does, I'm going to run. And uh, really? my buddy said, well, I wouldn't run. I said, well, then you stay here and fight with a guy that can rip the steel door off. What we would do is we would open the cell doors and we would let the inmates come out, but they were inside the unit. They, they didn't go anywhere. They were just inside the unit walking around on the ranges and stuff. And we called that recreation. I but see. It's so, not like they went to the yard or yeah. anywhere else. It wasn't actually a rec room. It was the actual unit itself. This Johnson finished his federal sentence. Uh, first of all, we transferred him out. When he was in G unit, um, the rumor went out that uh, God is going to have him killed, and there's nothing we can do to protect this guy. He's going to get blown up. His cell's going to catch fire. Something's going to happen. So they got him out of. Uh, Marion altogether. They transferred him out. And then Johnson finished his federal sentence. And I remember saying to one of my friends at the time, I said, that, that Walter Johnson guy is going to be some cop's nightmare. And I really didn't have any idea how true that was. What happened was he went to Washington, D.C. He jumped the turnstile because Walter Johnson don't have to pay for anything. He's Walter Johnson. And uh, uh, one of the employees, I guess, seeing that, sent a cop over to, uh, to, you know, write him a ticket or arrest him or something for jumping the turnstile at the, at the uh, underground. And uh, Johnson 
who worked out continuously all the time. This guy was like Superman. Uh, out of all the people that I dealt with, he was the one that made me the most nervous, the one that I would admit that I was afraid of and the only inmate that I was ever afraid of because he worked out all the time and he had this explosive temper. He killed that police officer. He, he beat the guy senseless, took his firearm and shot him in the head a couple of times and he died. He then went to um, Philadelphia and was uh, stopped on a traffic stop. He beats up three cops, tries to take one of their firearms, and an off-duty Philadelphia cop came over and, and uh, knocked him down and got the firearm away from him before he murdered these three cops. Then he went back to federal prison, and he's now at the ADX serving time with a murdered D.C. police officer. When they let him out, and I said, oh, yeah, he's going to be a nightmare for somebody, I had no clue what, how bad it was going to be. Interesting. Uh, David, I'm curious. Do you know have any idea what his crime was in the first place that landed him in, in Merriam? Yeah, he was a bank robber. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I was trying to figure out what kind of a federal crime uh, uh, just a street thug like that would, would do. You'd think he'd be in a state system, but being a bank robber, that, that, that would get him into the federal system. He was. I, I've met guys like that, yeah, no, and, and they're like so strong, and, and wrestled around with them on the street, and they're so strong with all your weight on one arm, you can't hardly control it. You'll have like three or four guys on them, you know, another guy on another arm, a couple of guys on their legs and their torso, and and you still can barely control them. They those are not the kind of people you want to run into alone. No, and uh, I hit people so hard with that thirty-six inch riot baton that I broke it. And I really think it wouldn't have bothered him a lot. I mean, he was just one of them kind of people. Well, uh, I, I fought inmates like that before, but they weren't that way to that extent. I mean, I, I hit him right in the forehead, and they kept coming. <laughs> Ted Johnson would have brushed me off like a fly. Yeah, my, he was that powerful. And you he was able to beat up three cops at the same time yeah. with the weapons and the, the techniques that they have. Wow. No wonder he kicked Gotti's butt, my really? point. <laughs> Let's go back to the, the A-B a minute, just a little bit. Now, I believe you said, uh, before we actually went on there, we talked about this a little bit. Gotti did have some kind of relationship with the uh, the leaders of the A-B at Merriam. Didn't you see them talking on occasion? Oh, yeah. They would uh, They would have, uh, it looked to me, when I looked at it, I said, wow, there's a business meeting going on. Yeah, I would see him and Barry Mills and... Uh, and uh, a guy named Tyler Bingham uh, would sit down at uh, at lunch, and then they would have this intense discussion while eating uh, lunch. So I- I've seen that a few times. What I noticed after that, and I'm not sure if this was part of it or what, but I noticed that the um, the Aryan Brotherhood changed about that time. When I first started working, the Aryan Brotherhood was all about violence. They would do violence for the sake of violence. But after they had this contact with Gotti, and, and I think that he influenced them, but I have no proof. I can't tell you for sure. I just tell you what I observed. He, he was talking with the commission, which was the top three guys. And about that time, they seemed to change their business plan, if that's what you want to call it. It became more about, okay, we're going to have violence, and we're going to be just as violent of a person, of, of a group as we ever were, but we're going to target this violence to make more money. So if someone 
like I was telling you before about they blew up a guy for merely not shutting a window. Well, they would stop doing that, and they would blow up a guy because he welched on a, a business meeting or he he didn't come through with the promise that he said he would to make the money. Like they wanted poison to poison people, and he didn't come up with the poison. He got blowed up. But if you didn't close the window, they might let that slide. That's And I think Dottie took the techniques from the street and and imparted that onto the to the Aryan Brotherhood. It, and that's just my opinion. I have nothing to back it up. That, that would that would be more in, in keeping or more like a, a mafia family in that you, you have you always have that big hammer out there if you need to use it. And if and everybody knows you got that big hammer if you need to use it, but you don't use it except when it's absolutely necessary in the course of business. It's all about making money, and it seemed like the ABs uh, controlled a certain amount of the uh, of, of drug activity both inside and outside the penitentiary system. I'd be surprised if they didn't control one hundred percent of the drug trafficking inside prison walls. They either control it or they allow it. Because there's no way that you're going to commit any crimes that they don't approve of. So, it's just not going to happen. So they're really like the uh, La Cosa Nostra, shall we say, of the uh, prison system. If you're going to, if you've got any action going, then you're going to have to uh, pay up to them just a little bit or let them wet their beak, as they say in the olden days. Would that be correct? That's, that's exactly the way it worked. Yes. And we even talked about it. It was like, we were saying, well, these guys are like the inside mafia. <laughs> and we thought that when uh, Dottie and, and uh, the commission was talking, we thought, well, and, and I believe it's true, that the, the mafia had contacts on the outside and could get things done, and the ABs had contacts and could get things done on the inside. So when Dottie ended up on the inside, the two melded together so that, hey, I'll do you a favor and you do me a favor. I need things done on the outside. You need things done on the inside. Yeah, that, that would be pretty, that would come in handy. Like we had a mob guy in Kansas city that we were on his phone and he got a call from a, a guy that was kind of a peripheral character. It was a, a businessman, really a gambler. And his son had gotten some kind of trouble and was going to be sentenced to Leavenworth. And they knew it was coming up pretty quick. And and this guy calls this Bob guy, mob associate, and said, hey, he said, my son's going to be going to Leavenworth on this date. Can you, you know, arrange to make sure that, that he's got somebody to meet him, that everything's going to be okay? And the guy said, well, sure, I can take care of that. Um, so that would that would be a, a pretty handy weapon to have uh, if you're going to be involved with criminal activity, especially in the federal system, to be able to make one call. And then when you come into the prison system that you're welcomed in by the most powerful prison gang and, and protected by them, that that would be huge. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would be uh and the other way around would work too. If you ever if you ever made them mad, there was nowhere in the federal system to hide. I mean, uh Mills could get people killed at Leavenworth just by putting out the word. So did he, did he, did you see evidence of him trying to run the family while he was there in the penitentiary, having like an underling, an underboss coming and talking to him? Well, his family came and visited him, but those, um, those meetings are 100% uh, monitored. There's like, he couldn't, he couldn't tell um, 
one of his family members to pass along a message that we wouldn't know about. It just wasn't possible. Out, outside of our, our observation would be through a lawyer. And uh, for all I know, his lawyers were crooked as hell. I don't know. Yeah, I never even told you the one runner I burned up Gotti's food. No, oh, that's purpose. right. That's right. That's let's a, let's do that. that. Let's do that one before we get out of here. Tell tell us the story about burning up Gotti's food. Okay. Um, some some genius came up with this idea of having a premium meal, a premium entree, and sell it in the commissary. And it was five or six bucks. It was very expensive for inmates who don't have money like that. Well, that wasn't a problem for Gotti. He had all the money that he could spend. He would spend the limit. So he decided that uh, he was going to get one of these premium uh, entrees. Well, to get it, get it properly prepared, it had to be cooked in a microwave. And all the other prisoners had enough sense to know that ain't no guard going to cook nothing for you. So we had the attitude of, look, we're, uh, we're here to, to take care of you, to make sure that you have everything you're supposed to have. But I'm not your servant. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not working in a restaurant here. So Gotti walked up to me, and he plopped one of these, uh, these premium um, uh, entrees, which was uh, some kind of a hamburger piece of meat thing. And he said, I want you to cook this for me. And I said, sure, no problem. Hand it over. <laughs> so I put it in the microwave. And this microwave, I've never seen one like it before. It, it's 220 volts. And I don't know how many watts this thing sucks. But when it turns on, you're supposed to cook six meals in it at a time. It heats six meals. So I put this little bitty tray with a, with a piece of meat in there about the size of my hand. And I gave it a flip over to seven, eight, ten minutes, something oh, like that. And then I went to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about ten feet from him. He can see it, and he can't do anything about it. And you're, it's just there cooking away. You're cold, man. You're and I walk away. Dude. <laughs> so I go in the bathroom, and I'm in there, and I use the bathroom. And I can hear him out there yelling, hey, hey, officer. You know, I'm I'm doing my thing, and I wash my hands, and I make sure that my tie is straight and I, I look down and polish my shoes a little bit. And then I have to go over and see the number one on the other side and ask him how he's doing and everything. The whole time I'm here, Hey, Hey, you better come over here. You know? And, and uh, after about 10 minutes, I went over there and I opened it up and there was this hockey puck thing <laughs> with a bunch of plastic melted around it oh, God. and it's smoking. And I, I push it out with a, with a, uh, um, paper towel and I said, oh, crap, I seem to have overcooked this. And I put it up on the thing. I go, well, here it is. And he goes, that's ruined. And I said, well, go get another one. And uh, he just grabbed it and walked away and never said it again. He was uh... So those, uh, those stories that, that we saw in, for example, the Goodfellas movie where they the, all the mob guys have this big kind of nicer cell and, and they bring in and they have a hot plate and they cook spaghetti and they make sauce and they have uh, you know prosciutto ham and all the all the delicacies uh that's not really true is, is what i hear you saying not at marion at marion everybody gets the same thing that everybody else gets and you don't get anything more or anything less Gotti was just another inmate in my cell house any other Gotti stories wait a minute before we stop let you got any other Gotti stories one just occurred to me. Okay. Um, 
he used to get a lot of mail. John Gotti got as much mail as the rest of the cell house combined. Oh, really? He, uh, he used to get, oh, yeah, he got a, a whole duffel bag every day, five days a week, of fan mail. And uh, he wouldn't read almost any of it. Every now and then he'd read a little, but not most of it. And I worked with this gal who just started working. It's just when we first started allowing women to work in the, in the Marion. For a long time, we were male only. Nobody behind the, the certain grill could be female. And uh, matter of fact, I'm the second smallest guy they ever hired up to that point. I'm five foot nine, and I'm the, I'm the sh- second shortest person they had working there. A little guy that was five foot eight, and everybody else is like a lot larger than I am, and uh, including most of the secretaries that were ladies are bigger than me. So. Uh, I'm one of the smallest people that ever worked there. And anyway, this, this girl that started working there, this lady that started working there, she would read Gotti's incoming mail from all these people. And she would show me these photographs of like women that had no clothes on except they're holding their hands over certain strategic parts. And it would say things like, I was hoping you would write me back, you know, crazy stuff like that. Yeah. Some fellows would write in and it was just insane. It was like, here's all the crimes that I committed, and he would have the left side. These are the ones I got arrested for. And on the right side, it would say, and these are the ones that cops haven't caught me at. And it was like, wow. wow. Like, we're going we're gonna to make a photocopy of this and send it to your chief of police, dumbass. <laughs> I used to read so many letters because this gal got me started on it. She was like, hey, look at this letter. You know? yeah. And, uh, he used to get some really humorous stuff. The guys that would, and there were several of them that would apply for a position with the mafia. And then there was all these women that would write and say, all kinds of, you know, I love you. And here's a picture of me naked. And you know, it's like, okay. And he didn't write, he didn't read them. He would just get the ones for his relatives or people that he knew and just hand the bag out to all the other thugs. And then they would write people. And a bunch of them would write and say that they were him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, those were some great stories that David had to tell. I, uh, it's uh, kind of amazing. Uh, I think maybe the, the most interesting and telling one was about how the other prisoners looked at John Gotti. And he, I called him recently and he said, even today, he said he has some kind of uh, uh, mob fan, uh, fan relatives who, when they find out, when they found out that he was a guard when Gotti was there, he, they were just like enthralled. They like held him up to higher esteem and, and wanted to know every detail about what it was like to, to talk to Gotti and be around Gotti. And as you could tell from uh, David's interview, he was, he was not too impressed with John Gotti being the uh, huge big mob bosses as we really don't need to be too impressed by these guys who uh, earn infamy, if you will, off the backs of other people. Now, I realize a lot of people say, well, they only kill their own, but they also make everything cost a lot more money. All that scamming of the concrete business and the building trades and the unions in uh, New York City and Manhattan by the mob and, and all the things that fell off a truck, as we say, that many of us have bought, uh, you know, that, you know, that costs society as a whole a certain amount of money. Uh, kind of like the Teamsters Pension Fund now, and they borrowed all that money from it. 
Now, some people say they paid it all back. I got a feeling that a lot of those pension loans were never paid back. Uh, and now those Teamsters pensioners are the, the, the fund has run into really hard times. Now, part of the reason is because the trucking business was deregulated and went non-union for the most part. And, and they cut back on new members and, and there's no new money coming into the pension fund, which is all gets kind of complicated. But, uh, but uh, the mob does cost society on the whole uh, quite a little bit of money and, and energy by law enforcement and taxpayer money to, to pay that. And so I guess if you're willing to let some mob bosses run your cities and your governments, why uh, more power to you. But it's not, some pl- it's not a society that I particularly want to live in. And, and I'm not impressed with the goddies of the world myself. So uh, that's my two cents on that, and I appreciate you guys listening. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.